Lord, when you rescued us, you took our breath away. As we continue in our worship by throwing our hearts open and throwing the word open, we pray that you would take our breath away again. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Several years ago, I started a practice of my uh, dear friend Richard White, is one of the guys in my covenant group, a fellow pastor. Uh, he had a practice of praying for his congregation, um, getting away each year and praying for them um, through the whole church. And uh, so about four years ago, I started the same practice. And this past Thursday, I had uh, the privilege of praying uh, through the entire roster, praying for each of you by name. Many of you, we had your pictures. Uh, I had your pictures as I was praying. And it was really an incredible joy to, uh, to be able to love you in that way and to, to lift you, uh, each of you, uh, into the love of the Lord in that way. Um, and it just deepens my fondness for you all. I sure do love you. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a real gift to have that time uh, with you and on your behalf Thursday. And thanks to the, those of you who shared specific ways I could be praying for you. It was really a treat to be able to pray in those specific ways. Look forward to seeing how God works. Well, this summer, we had a taste of something sweet together in our seven-week summer experience, didn't we? It felt like there was a, the hint of a deeper possibility for our life together. Kind of a, the experience of a door maybe suggesting that there was another room that we might be able to walk in to, to, together as the people of God. I think that was true in a couple of ways. We were given a perspective of us as church that was more than just a bunch of individuals coming together as a group and being in the same place and at the same time doing the same thing. It moved out, it, it kind of was an antidote for some of our kind of steep independence and autonomy and, and, uh, and isolation and a, a growing sense of an usness, of a, a, this is who we are together. And I, we also had the opportunity, many of us, to form new connections, to start new relationships. I had a number of people tell me that one of the most important gifts of the summer was just that it, it gave me the opportunity in a safe way to step across and to just introduce myself to someone whose face is familiar, who I've been worshiping sometimes for years in the same pew with, but finally that, that impetus to move past that and to drop a little deeper with each other. And several of you have shared how some of those connections have continued, and I've seen you connecting up with people you met during the summer as you've been back here on Sundays for worship. There's really something sweet that we experience together. So how do we open that, how do we open up that something more? How do we keep walking through that door into that next room? Well, I believe that one of the most important things that we can do as the people of God is to take our view of this thing called church and to hold it up against God's view of this thing called church, and to let our view be adjusted by his view, since after all, he's the one who invented this thing called church. 
I think it's very tempting for us to, to do church on our terms. And I think that God wants to invite us to lean into doing church on his terms, which will stretch all of us and, I think, make our time together only richer and our life together only richer. So part of the way that we're going to do that is this fall we are going to embark on a sermon series on the church that will take us deeper into the New Testament understanding of what the church is called to be and to do. The New Testament, as I'm sure you're aware if you've spent any time in the scripture, the New Testament uses a number of different images and metaphors as pictures of the church that are meant to, each one of them, to highlight a different facet of God's intentions for the church. So in this series, we're going to pick up and unpack a dozen or so of those. Each message will start off with seeking to just bring into greater clarity one particular aspect of God's design for the church, some dimension of the church that is implied by that particular image. So let me just give you an example of what we'll be doing in each of the sermons. So uh, the example is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. This isn't the focus of our message this morning. But in that passage, Paul says the church is a letter from Jesus. So the implication of that part of God's design for the church, part of the reason that we exist is to communicate a message that God desires to communicate to the world that's around us. We've been given a message from God, and there's an intended recipient for that message. So then, in each of these messages, we'll look at the corresponding image. If this is what's true about us, what does that say is true about God, who is the source, the king, the life of the church? What does this tell us about the nature and the character of the God that we serve and love? So, using this example, if we are Christ's letter, then that makes Jesus the letter writer. And that suggests at least three really important things about him. He is the source of truth. He is the revealer of truth. And he is eager to make his truth known. He's compassionate and loving towards those who lack the truth and who need it. So he's made an arrangement to get the truth to them. And that arrangement is us. So then the other dimension that we'll be opening up in each of these messages is the invitation for God's people that each of these images implies. So what is our calling as the people of God in the light of this image? How are we challenged to live more deeply into God's design for us? So, for example, just to, to uh, finish out this example, when Paul says that we are Christ's letter, there, I think, are really uh, two very clear invitations. First invitation, be sure that the message is clear. Our transformed lives are the heart of the message. Paul says that this letter is not written with ink on paper or chiseled in, um, into stone. It is written on our hearts. Our new Christ-like hearts are the primary message that God intends to give to the world through us. And then the other intention is so make sure the mail gets delivered. Get God's message into the hands of its intended recipients. That means going to the world, stuffing the letter into the box, even in a a-frame shaped box is not what God's ultimate intention is for the church. God wants us to go deliver the letter, which is us, to the recipients, which is the world. So that's just kind of a bonus mini message as we come into the message this morning. So from now till Thanksgiving, we're going to be exploring some of these really rich images and wrestling together with what the implications are 
for us. At the beginning of the series, we're going to be looking at several images that primarily have to do with our relationship as the people of God with God who is our life. Then we'll look at a couple of key images that have to do with the relationship that God intends for us to have with one another. And then we're going to wrap up with looking at about four images that have to do with God's intention and design for the church and our relationship with the world. I hope that you'll do um, everything you can to be part of this conversation. Make being here on Sunday morning a priority. If you have to miss, catch the message online and, and stay in the conversation with us. And one of the ways you can do that is to use the discussion questions that we'll be providing as a way of deepening the conversation that we get to have with each other as we reflect on these images. So with, with that introduction, let me just uh, lead us again in prayer. So Lord, as we embark on this exploration of these uh, really rich images that you've given us of the church in the scriptures. We pray that you would continue the work in us that you've begun over the years and also over recent months. Widen and deepen our understanding of your call on us as your people. And by your spirit, equip and enable us to live more and more deeply into your design for the church. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is the king of the church. Amen. So the first image of the church that we'll be looking at in this series is the church as the ones being saved. Jesus is the super, oh, hang on a sec. Missed a page. Here is, um, here is one of several places where this expression is used. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, the ones being saved, it is the power of God. You see this expression, the same expression, the ones being saved, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that, that we are the aroma of Christ among the ones being saved. And in Acts chapter 2, 47, the Lord added to their number daily those, the ones who were being saved. So Savior, saved, salvation. This is one of the most important ideas in all of the Christian faith. Words from this word family show up about 165 times in the New Testament. That's a, more frequently than every other page. So it's one of the most central themes that we come across. But I think because we encounter this word so often, and because it has become kind of almost a technical term for us, we just use it rotely to talk about who Jesus is, Jesus is my savior, to talk about our experience of the Christian life. Yeah, I was saved in college. We use it so rotely that I think um, all of the, the intended passion and, uh, and vibrancy of, of what it's describing has fallen out of the word in our use of it. This is the same word that is used in Acts chapter 27 to describe surviving a harrowing shipwreck. This is the same word that's used in Philippians chapter 1 to describe the wonder of being released from prison and chains and allowed to go free. It captures the miracle of being rescued from a completely hopeless situation that is utterly outside of our power to change and being brought out into freedom. So I think when we come across this word Savior, we should think rescuer. When we talk about ourselves being saved, we should think we were rescued. 
Have you noticed how many superhero movies have come out in the last few years? And how many keep coming out? I looked at the list of all the ones that are still in the lineup coming out over the next several years. I think it says something about how many of them are when you can find an article online that is about the 75 best superhero movies. <laughs> I think the superabundance of superhero movies is, says something super profound about the spiritual state of our world. You know, we have a world that says it's completely uninterested in the Christian message. And yet here is this longing again and again and again, a recognition of a need to be rescued and a longing for a rescuer to come. So think about it for a minute. What is the basic plot line of every single superhero movie? Superhero uses superpowers to defeat bad guy and rescue helpless people, right? Well, the New Testament is the original superhero movie. And it's the only one that's true. According to the New Testament, we are all in need of rescue. The entirety of humanity, every single one of us, we are the helpless people in desperate need of Savior. Satan, the evil one, is the bad guy in this story with nefarious designs to cause harm to helpless humanity and to rob us of God's intended best for us. And Jesus is the superhero. He is the rescuer who comes from outside this broken world to rescue us. His superpower is love, and it finds its ultimate expression on the cross where Jesus defeats the enemy and he sets us free. All of the drama and emotion at the end of a great rescue mission, that mix of wonder and disbelief and, and relief and gratitude, that should be ours as the people of God, as followers of Christ. Especially when we think about the real peril that we are in when we are outside of relationship with Christ. This is, this is described and elaborated upon in a number of different places of Scripture. But, but to sum it up quickly... According to scripture, God made us, every one of us, for relationship with himself. When we reject relationship with him, and when we live independently of him, rejecting his rightful place in our lives, the consequence of that sinful act of defiance against our creator is a broken life. And separation and alienation from God, both now and eternally. In 1979, when the Iranian hostage crisis broke out and the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was stormed, six Americans were trapped in a home and surrounded. The movie Argo tells the true story of their harrowing escape, a rescue and escape. And here's the clip at the end of the movie that imagines what it was like for them when they finally escaped the country and the reality of their rescue began to sink in.
got wheels up. Wait. That's us. That's the church. When we use language to describe ourselves, the language of salvation, that's what's intended to be evoked in us. That sort of falling toward one another in awe and in wonder and in gratitude. Really? How can it be? What a miracle. You too? What a gift. How grateful we are. You may have followed this story last year, the boys' soccer team in Thailand that was uh, trapped in flooded caves for 10 days. When the rescuers finally found their way more than a while, uh, mile through uh, underwater caves uh, from the entrance, all the boys could do when they surfaced in the water where they were was to just keep saying thank you. And after the rescue was completed. It took another week to get each one of them out, an individual rescue that took eight hours to get them from where they were trapped out to the entrance. Once they were all rescued safely and all had a chance to go home, all they wanted to do was to get back together and recount the story of their rescue, to tell it again to each other, to get with their rescuers and to be able to thank them and to be able to celebrate and to honor the one diver who died Um, seeking to rescue them. That's Christian fellowship, and that's Christian worship. Worship is prisoners of war having regular reunions to celebrate the liberation of their prison camp. It is death row prisoners throwing a party to celebrate together because their sentences were commuted. It is passengers on a sinking ship returning to the site of the accident to remember their rescue, and to honor their rescuers. So if the governing image in this passage is that we are the saved ones, that we are the ones being rescued, then the corresponding image of Jesus, of course, is that he is the great rescuer. He is the superhero who has come from outside and broken into this broken world to put it right and to rescue us and to bring us into the relationship with God for which we were made. That is the reason, we are told, that Jesus came to earth, to rescue us. As Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save. He came to rescue that which was lost. 
This rescue mission doesn't just reflect the heart of Jesus towards us. It reflects the loving heart of our Father as well, who sees our plight and is moved by love to rescue us out of our alienation from him and into relationship with him. You may hear John 3.16 differently this morning. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The scriptures claim not only that Jesus came to rescue us for that specific purpose, but they go on and they make an even broader claim. And that is that there is no other way out of our spiritual plight. Jesus is the only true rescuer. There is no other rescuing hand that we can grab onto with confidence. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Five years ago, Hyperion came from China to West Lafayette. Come on up here, Hyperion. To study at Purdue, and shortly after he got here, through one of the ministries on campus, he heard the Christian message and became a follower of Christ. And he is now working on a music project that I think is really exciting, Hyperion. And, uh, and the central theme is about uh, Jesus as our rescuer. And so I just invited Hyperion to come and share with us uh, some of where uh, God has him. Yeah, thanks, David. Um, I want to start with a verse. John 16, uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples. Um, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the, tribula uh, the word tribulation is from Greek, phlipsis. Uh, it means pressure, distress, affliction, and they're the themes of a mu my music. Um, because they remind me two things. One is that the world is broken. There's good and there's evil, no matter what the world tries to tell you. Um, and I am affected by the evil in the world and ev evil even in my own life. And the second thing is, um, God is the hero, it's not me. Uh, when you read some of the Psalms, a lot of them, actually the author cried to God in the midst of despair. Um, they ask God for help, they praise the Lord, and they seek um, salvation and refuge in the Lord. Even, even a lot of times uh, in my own life, uh, some problems don't seem to get resolved. Um, there's one thing for sure, and that is um, God made a promise. He has overcome all the problems. And that really encourages me to focus only on God and not myself. Uh, it is not about how God can solve my problem. Absolutely, God can do that. And it's not about how God can solve the problem in the world. Absolutely, he can do that, but uh, the point is just giving my heart to God and dwell with him in his presence and praise him and worship. Um, I've been reading Psalms 90, and that inspires me to write this poem for one of the songs I wrote. Um, Madness of the souls returns to dust where the end beholds. Endless struggles mark the scars in the eternal. Master of time brings forth millennium and bears chronicles. May his salvation shine on the road. Can all the kingdom take them home? Thank you. Thank you, Thank you.
We've been rescued. And Jesus is our rescuer. So as we said earlier, every image of the church comes with an invitation. What does it mean for us to live into this image of the church as the ones being rescued? Well, as it happens, the invitation from this image lines up really nicely with our call as a church. And I'm sure you remember this. Our call is to know Jesus, grow with his people, and go to the world. But first of all, knowing Jesus. One of the things that becomes really clear is that from the New Testament perspective, there are not four basic categories of human beings, or seven, or nine. There are two. You are either outside of the Christian faith and in need of rescue, or you are one of those who is being rescued. And you can see that stark division of humanity into those two groups, those who are perishing and those who are being rescued in all sorts of different places, including in the passage that we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 1.18, which says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to the ones who are being saved, who are being rescued, it is the power of God. And the church, by definition, is that second group. It is the most basic and important definition of the church. It is the people who are being rescued. If you were to decide that you were interested in becoming a member of this church, or really of any church, after a short class that oriented you to what we were about as a church and where we were heading and how you could jump in and be part of that, what being involved would look like, then you would meet together with the elders of the church and they would ask you just one question. Tell us your rescue story. They don't ask you about your nationality or your age, your church experience, your education level, who your parents are, what your income is, what your political party is, what your denominational background is. They just ask you one question. Tell us your rescue story. What do you believe about this Jesus and the difference that he has made in your life? We are urged in, in Scripture to come to a place where we reach out our hand to this rescuer who is reaching out his hand to us and allow him to pluck us into safety and into freedom and into joy. So from a New Testament perspective, I mean, there are so many things that we can involve ourselves in this life, building relationships, pursuing a vacation, seeking to accomplish goals or, or to, to uh, satisfy our desires or work our way through our bucket list. But from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, the single most important pursuit in your life is to clarify which category you're in, to clarify your real spiritual state as a human being who was created by God for relationship with him but now living outside of that relationship. What does that mean and what are the implications if you are not a follower of Christ? We are called to come to know Jesus as our rescuer, to reach out our hand to his and to allow him to pluck us into relationship with himself. We've already heard the New Testament condition for rescue. It's just one thing, faith, belief, and trusting our lives into the hands of this trustworthy rescuer. So the way that we experience 
Rescue is simply to lay hold of our rescuer as he lays hold of us, to entrust our lives into his hands and to let him do all of the rest. Three verses after that one that we looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, God was pleased to save those who believe. That's how our rescue happens. We trust, we entrust our lives to him. Or using the language we've been using, God was pleased to rescue those who entrusted their lives into his hands. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he's in charge, he's the king. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is the proof of his authority and power to rescue you, then you will be saved. You will be rescued. Have you reached out your hand to the rescuer? If not, can you commit to exploring the Christian faith and its claims? Exploring who Jesus is and what it would mean to follow him? As a church family, we love having people in our midst who are asking questions about Christianity who are wrestling with the faith and, and what it would mean to recognize Jesus as Savior. So if you are curious about the faith, if you want to wrestle through some of these questions, we invite you to uh, look in your bulletin and watch for the next upcoming uh, monthly conversation about Christianity that we have. These are intended to be safe places for you to bring your really hard questions and objections about the Christian faith and to wrestle through whether or not Christianity is just another mythical superhero story or whether or not it's really true and has implications for your life today. Know Jesus. The next part of our calling, grow with his people. Did you happen to notice that the phrase that we're looking at today is not the ones who were saved or the saved, it's the ones being saved. In the New Testament, salvation that stands at the center of our faith is not a once-and-done event. It is a past and present and future reality. There are scriptures that speak of having been saved in the past, at the moment when we first entrusted our lives to Jesus, our rescuer, such as Titus chapter 3 verse 5. There are other passages such as Matthew chapter 10 verse 22 that talk about our salvation as something that will happen in the future. They speak about when we will be saved, when Jesus comes back and reclaims and remakes all of creation. And then there are passages like the one we've been looking at, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that speaks of, having been, of our being saved right now in the present. So just like those six hostages in the embassy, they were saved the moment that they entrusted their lives into the capable hands of their rescuers. They were also being saved as they were taking off in that jet from hostile lands and breaking free from enemy airspace, and they will be saved once they land and are brought home. So once we put our trust in Jesus as rescuer, but before we die and go to be with the Lord, or he returns, we are in this middle stage of being saved. In Philippians chapter 2, there is that familiar and mysterious and somewhat troubling passage that says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Probably a more helpful way to put this in English is continue to work in your salvation, not continue to work out your salvation. 
This isn't calling us to revert to a self-rescue project based on our own efforts. This is calling us to cooperate with the work of the Spirit as He shapes our will to conform with His and as He shapes our character and our lives to conform with Christ's. Once we are rescued, we are we join together with others who've had the same absolutely miraculous rescue experience, and together we engage in the hard work of learning to cooperate with God and to grow as God's people. From a biblical perspective, salvation is a two-dimensional reality, and I think this is so important for us always to keep in mind. It is being saved from the eternal consequences of our sinful rebellion against God, saved from death, saved from hell, saved from separation from God for eternity, but it is also being saved into the relationship for God which, for which we were made. I've said this before, but there is a sense in which it is more accurate to say Jesus didn't come to die for our sins. He came to bring us into relationship for God, to rescue us into that relationship. And that's why, that's what necessitated his death. That's why he needed to die on the cross, to rescue us into relationship with God. So this is where things like regular worship, when we gather together as fellow rescued people to thank, to praise and thank our rescuer. And this is also where our close relationships with one another as others who have been rescued. And as we use our, our time and our gifts to love and to serve one another, this is where those things come in. So the ministries of our church are designed to create settings where you can grow in your relationship with God and your relationship with the people of God. We aren't providing you all these ministry opportunities because we expect you to be involved in every single one. Instead, we expect you to be attentive to where God has you in this process of working in your salvation with fear and trembling and to follow him in his invitation um, into what's next. So what is the next growth step that God is calling you to as you deepen your relationship with your rescuer? And can you commit to taking that step this fall? There's one more dimension to our calling that is perhaps the easiest for us to forget and to neglect. And that is to go to the world with our faith as God's representatives and to serve him there. What if you had just experienced miraculous release from prison or, or rescue from a raft that was about to plunge over the falls and you knew that there were others who were still in that situation for whom rescue was still available, what would you do? Wouldn't part of your gratitude at having been rescued find expression and turn turning right around and being part of the rescue mission for still others? The people around us who don't know Jesus are not people who are just going through life slightly less satisfied than we are, but all basically on the same path and ending up in the same place. They are people who are lost. I showed you the closing moments of the movie Argo a few minutes ago, when the ones who had been rescued fall towards each other in wonder and in relief. But that actually isn't the final scene of the movie. There's one more final scene of the movie that I want to show you now. This is what happened, this is what is happening among the many, many 
others who all collaborated together to bring about the rescue of these six. So let's pick it up right where we left off. They're clear. I want to share in that joy. I want to be part of that. And I want you to be part of that with me. In Acts chapter 2, 47, describing the early church, it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being rescued. That's part of God's design and part of God's heart for the church always. That's what God intends to happen in the church everywhere and in every place and in every age until he returns. So how are you making room in your life to spend time with people who are outside of the faith and need rescue? Can you commit to being intentional to equip yourself to share your faith more effectively and to building relationships with people that God has already placed around you in your life? 